Good afternoon, 7 Investors, and welcome to the Friday edition of 7 Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks-Klein, and I'm the host of the program. I'm joined today by Simon Erickson and Steve Symington for a jam-packed episode. Guys, this day is insane. How did we plan this this way? Simon, take everyone through all of the public-facing and members-only things we're doing today. Uh, well, we are effectively juggling 17 things at the exact same time right now. <laughs> and we've got a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. I think it's a good time to have, actually. Yeah, so this morning we recorded a mock pick, which basically it's to show non-members what our process is like for the calls we're recording this afternoon, which are our picks. Each one of us makes a stock pick each month, and we spend 15 minutes uh, to a half hour sort of explaining to everybody, here's why we picked it, and then we take questions. We're also doing our Perspectives podcast where we pick something that's going to be public-facing, where we talk about something that maybe people haven't seen, and we go through it. Steve, you have to edit also going up today our advisor updates. Those are members only. This is a lot on our plate, but we are very excited for 7investing now. We got a jam-packed show. We're going to talk Netflix earnings at the top. Then we're going to go into uh, sort of the non-political aspect of some political stuff. We're going to talk about what's going on with the incoming administration, some of the hurdles they face. But again, we are not going to talk politics. We're going to talk impact on the market. We would love your questions and comments. We're also going to talk about the biggest beverage company in the world. It might not be who you think it is, but uh, let's hit the ground running with Netflix earnings. This is our top story. Netflix stock soared on Wednesday. Uh, it was up about 15% to 577 at 77. So a little nod to us in their, their closing price uh, per share. That's the largest gain the stock has made since it closed uh, up 19% in October 2016. That's largely because they said two things. Uh, the first is they've, they've surpassed 200 million subscribers. That is a, an astounding amount. That is, It's a very global company. Um, so more of their subscribers are not in the U.S. than are in the U.S. Um, and the second piece of that is they said they were going to be free cash flow positive. Um, Simon, you wanted to talk about that. What does that mean? I, this, this surprises me, and I'm not entirely sure it's sustainable, but what does that mean? This is a huge deal for Netflix. It means that the company, after paying all of its operating expenses, including its content budget, is rolling out additional operating cash. I'm sorry, free, free cash flow for shareholders. That is a really big deal because for so many years, it was Netflix was plowing more and more money into creating its own original content, buying others' content to make sure that that library of video content it had for subscribers was as massive of a buffet to choose from as possible. So for Netflix to say, hey, we're going to step off the accelerator a little bit, we're going to be producing free cash flow by the end of this year and in years going forward. That's an interesting conundrum, Dan, that I think that we can talk a little bit more about on this show because it could have big implications for the business and its investors. Yeah, I, and I, I think it's a bit of an illusion. So in some areas, they're spending more money because they have to catch up on production of things that slowed down. But there's a lot of things that are not in production. So I'm not sure one quarter of free cash flow says that they're going to make money. Uh, and Steve, we'll get you in in a minute here. I've got questions for both of you. But Simon, this scares me because if I'm Netflix, I am making sure I have billions of dollars on hand 
to buy name brand content. Uh, and we've seen this with Disney+. Plus. Disney+, Plus has WandaVision, and that's its new show. It's in the Avengers universe. It's For the next two months, it's all we'll be talking about. And they put out essentially one show over two months. They have some little things, but for the most part, during that time period, Netflix is putting out a movie a week. Those are movies that cost $40 million to $250 million. Why are they not trying to buy James Bond or whatever else is out there that's still independent? Why did they not bid on, say, DreamWorks? Maybe they did, but they didn't get it. This seems to me like a foolhardy strategy. Your thoughts, Simon? It's a very different strategy than what we've seen with Disney, which is going to power law, right? Make the Mandalorian and make that the biggest show that everybody wants to watch. Netflix is use the recommendation engine data that it collects and then go after those niche-specific shows, a Rocky Horror Picture Show that have a cult following of people that really want to follow these smaller shows that aren't these mega blockbusters. At the end of the day, we only have so many hours to watch shows. Uh, I tend to agree with you that we should be focusing those on the bigger budget uh, pieces that, that more people will be watching. But again, it's a difference in strategy. The overall important takeaway is that Netflix right now is not advertising supported. Content is everything and subscriber numbers have looked thus far very, very strong for them. Steve, I'll bring you in here. So Netflix's strategy is, okay, we have an algorithm. The algorithm tells us that our audience really likes Adam Sandler. And that's a bet that they made that was correct because he's a big ticket guy. But in a lot of cases, they're going, okay, our algorithm says if we have The Rock in a movie with a penguin and somebody wearing bunny ears, that that would be a minor hit and it would keep people. So in my opinion, they're throwing 100 shows at a wall where two good ones would do. What am I missing here? Uh, I think um, I think we tend to underappreciate how smart Netflix is and how they use their data. Um, you know, I I do agree uh, they they might be possibly better off. You know, just dropping some money on you know some acquisitions to pick up um, some really big properties. <laughs> I saw somebody tweet the other day something to the effect of uh, the best way to find out if a movie's on Netflix is to ask if you want to watch it. And if you do, it's probably not there. So that's <laughs> kind of how uh, how it feels sometimes. But there's enough there that I'm not canceling my my subscription. And it sure turns out uh, a lot of other people aren't. And their their growth has been pretty impressive. And uh, I, I think um, maybe people are underestimating just how effective their strategy is, uh, regardless of, of what we want to be there. So uh, it, it, making their service sticky and keeping people around. So we'd love your questions and comments on Netflix. Um, we are going to take some unrelated comments in between segments. So, so get them in. Wherever you're watching, in theory, you can comment and we will be able to see it. Just say hello if you'd like to. We are an interactive show. We're always happy with that. I, I, I know Netflix is really smart, but... I think they've built up to this place where they have so much you feel like you can't leave. Let me ask both of you. I haven't watched anything on Netflix in months, and I find in general there's two reasons for that. One, they cancel shows now. So if I watch season one of something and I don't know there's going to be a season two, that to me is the old network model. I don't want that. So I don't watch things on Netflix until they've kind of finished, which means I'm sort of like years behind. Steve, are you watching anything on Netflix right now? Uh, yeah, I think I think our uh, Shit's Creek is one of those shows that we've been watching lately, and I, I'm sure my wife sits downstairs, and you know if she's 
you know, folding laundry or doing something else. Like she'll be watching Dawson's Creek reruns and, and they've got enough old like shows like that and new shows that are, that are kind of coming out that we're catching up on uh, that. Yeah. We watch Netflix all the time and, and the kids will just kind of peruse it every once in a while. And, and uh, yeah, it's kind of just, it's always there and, and we use it often. Shit's Creek was actually an example of something, a good content acquisition. They bought a name brand that didn't have a streaming home uh, at the height of its popularity. The show was going off the air. It won a whole bunch of Emmys. A lot of people were interested. It was never that big a show during its, its height. It was always kind of, it was on pop TV in the US. Good luck finding that. Uh, so I've got questions for both of you. We're going to go through these. Then we are going to go through some of the questions in the queue. First question, and we'll go Steve first, then Simon. How much more can they grow? Is 300 million subscribers possible? Steve? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's the short answer. Uh, I, I think that's that's plenty possible. And we're done. We will be back. On- <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do think um, I, I think their ceiling's a lot higher than people assume it it, it is. And uh, yeah, I think that's definitely possible. And it's just sort of one of those things that uh, it's priced in such a way that you say, why not? Uh, there's so much there, and I think the value's there. And uh, and on a global basis, um, I, you know, I think that's where we get uh, a lot of the growth going forward. Obviously, you can only go so far in the United States, uh, where you have a few hundred million people total. Um, but yeah, I, I think globally, uh, if they they play their cards right, um, they can continue growing uh, almost indefinitely uh, from here. And Simon, your thoughts? Can they get to 300 million? And, and I'll throw in a wrinkle: How quickly can they get to 300 million? Yeah, what Steve said is my answer. I agree that it's definitely possible. And, you know, to answer your, your follow-up of how quickly, I mean, Netflix added 100 million subscribers in the last three years, and most of that came internationally. So is it possible to do it again? Yeah, I think I think it absolutely is. I think it's going to be a tough go, actually. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing cord cutting in the U.S. has gotten really wobbly because a lot of people are cutting the traditional cord but adding streaming television options. And the one thing Netflix has done a really good job with that I don't think gets talked about enough is they're on every platform. Now, we expect our streamers to be on Roku. We expect them to be on you know your, your Google device, your Apple device. But my Comcast cable boxes have Netflix native, so I don't have to switch inputs. I use a TiVo as my DVR, as my cable box and my main TV. Netflix is integrated to that. So again, the content is much easier to get to. That's a really big positive. I'm going to say, though, I'm pretty down on Netflix. I keep Netflix because my wife watches Netflix. Um, and I know some of that is I, I consume a lot of comedy on Netflix. And right now we're not in a period where, where new comedy specials are getting recorded. I haven't found it a particularly good value. Uh, but I think some of that is the contrarian in me being like, oh, everyone says Ozark is good. All right, I'm not going to watch it. Um, so Nisha, so chat. Yeah, go so ahead. Let me put the over under at 300 million subscribers for Netflix globally on uh, on January 22nd, 2024. Three years from now, is is the Netflix Ooh. above or, or under 300 million global subscribers? I, I would take the over, but it sounds like you might be taking the under on that one. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the under. I think it takes a year longer than that. I think they'll I'd, get I'd there. Take the over as well. Oh. Yeah. Let, let's ask our, our, our viewers. I mean, are, are over or under 300 million Netflix global subscribers by January 22nd, 2024, three years from today? Let's throw in a couple of comments from our viewers while we do that. Uh, Nishan Shan says, uh, he points out that uh, Schitt's Creek is originally a Canadian show. Yeah, it was actually financed uh, by, uh, I believe, the CBC, but Pop, uh, there was a deal to distribute it. So some of the money to produce the quality of show 
and he also points out uh, i assume he i apologize if it's if it's not um he also points out that Netflix gives you exposure to a lot of non-North American content uh, that we might otherwise not get. And that's true to a point. A lot of the British shows you see on Netflix, you were getting on BBC America, but it is easier to find it. The other major expense Netflix has, uh, and, and I'll let you weigh out on this, Simon, is when they go to a market, they, they have to localize the content. That's something Disney has largely already done for DVD and other delivery. And they have to create market-specific content, whereas I would say the Disney content is evergreen. You know, Cinderella or Star Wars plays pretty much everywhere. Pixar movies, maybe some of them the nuance doesn't play, but you know, you can be bored by up and no matter what country you're in. You could follow along the incredibly simplistic plots of Toy Story. I'm teasing because people know I don't like Pixar movies, uh, <laughs> but this is one of those. So let's get to question number two. Two or Simon, weigh, weigh in on that if you like. I, I, it's an inherent advantage for Disney, in my opinion. I, I, I think so. And, and Dan, I think that my takeaway on this is that Disney is not playing the same game that Netflix is playing. Disney has got a century of content that our movies people love and we watch on a daily basis over here at the Erickson household. Netflix does not have that pocket, uh, those deep pockets of content. It has to play a data advantage, it has to learn regionally what people are watching. And it's not a really large organization. You know, Netflix does not have a ton of employees. It's relying on the AI, the recommendations engine, and it's making strategic bets, which is why you don't see Netflix going out and, and making these mega blockbuster movies like, uh, like Disney is, or, or even not even movies, but you know, Netflix shows, original shows. It's trying to be strategic. It's trying to make smaller bets. I think that we're probably going to see that continue internationally in the next couple of years. Roman they're making taking the over by the way on, <laughs> by the way on facebook uh, they're making them right. yeah. they're just not resonating the way say an avengers does so when you take something like uh you know the bright the movie where will smith was battling orcs and there were blue people and i have no idea what was going on and i watched it that movie cost 200 and something million dollars to make and they say it was a hit but it's a hit in that whatever their algorithm tells them it's a hit. They've had very few movies that cross over into public consciousness. I'll say the one where uh, Sandra Bullock had to be blindfolded. That that absolutely became as big a hit as something that was a box office success. But aside from that, it's very rare. And even when it comes to television shows, you know, you do have Bridgerton, you have The Crown, you, ha you have a, a handful of things that, that have become pop culture in recent years, and we're going to talk about why that doesn't work most of the time in a little while. Steve Symington, is there a ceiling on price? They're charging, it's $11.99 in the U.S. Can they go to $19.99 eventually? Can they go to $29.99? Is there a ceiling? <laughs> eventually. I don't I don't think they can do it the way uh, Hulu Live did it, where you know they had a, a, a live streaming um, version of their service with you know commercials and cable, basically. But I think it, it went something from you know thirty nine ninety nine to forty nine ninety nine to fifty four ninety nine and and, uh, and you know all of a sudden I'm like why do I have this and why did I cancel my cable that's silly but Netflix is is very methodical about the way they raise prices so uh, it's one of those things where they just add a couple bucks and nobody even thinks anything of it so uh, I think they've got a long um, runway for uh, increasing prices and thereby you know, enjoying more operating leverage in the business and. And uh, and I think that'll be a, a catalyst for the stock each time they do it. But yeah, I think they do. They have a lot of room to get there. 
so when you have 200 million subscribers, uh, every dollar in price you add is $2.4 billion in revenue. Simon, do you think they have a ceiling? Do they have to tread carefully here? Yeah, I, I think so, Dan. Uh, you know, and I think that Steve's description of being methodical is the right way to think about this. Um, there's a lot of options now for streaming. To, to be honest with you, I, I don't know really what is a lot of the times a Netflix show versus an Amazon original show versus something else that's coming through our Amazon Fire Stick. You know, the, and it's it's kind of all blending together now. And you just hear about the shows that you want to watch. You discover them on the home screen, and then you, and then you run with it from there. And so then it becomes a matter of you know what's the must-haves um, and how many can you realistically subscribe to. Everyone thinks digital streaming is the future. There's not a single content producing company out there that doesn't see this as the wave. And so the question becomes, as we as we split off from, from bundled cable TV, what are the must-have shows and uh, how much are people willing to spend on that? And that's exactly what Netflix is like, like to steal the words from, from Steve methodically answering right now. So let's look at the bigger picture here. You have people who are cutting the cord. Many of them are only sort of cutting the cord because if you like sports, you probably need to get Sling TV or Hulu Live or, or dare I say Fubo. Uh, you have to get – they're all the same, by the way. They're all, they're all just slightly different packaging of content. So we've talked about this before, and I don't want to bag on Fubo, but – Hulu has live sports is their commercial. Like that's one of their commercials. And now they're running commercial. Hulu has more than live sports. These are all just skinny cable bundles where either you're making choices. Like I have sling. And when you get sling, you can get a very basic, I think it's $25 package. And then you can layer on and say, well, I'd like more sports. I'd like more news channels. And those little bundles cost $5. It's all a question of how they do it. But we've got HBO. We've got uh, Paramount, which is the CBS All Access rebranding. We've got Disney Plus. There are a lot of top tier content companies out there. Do you think at some point people make choices and Netflix, if they don't have current hits, maybe gets rotated out? Steve, you get to go first here. <sighs> yeah, maybe. Maybe they do. Um, I, I'm. I just can't see it in the near term. You know, that's that's. I think uh, where we sit is is that. Uh, it's going to be a long, long time uh, before we're there. And uh, I, I think the current state of things, uh, the, the current market leaders are, are pretty happy with where they are. And uh, I, don't, I don't see that changing you know, over the next couple of years. Simon, your thoughts here? I agree. I mean, that's why we do series. That's why we make 5,000 Avengers movies. I mean, you got to get the foot in the door first. And then you just roll out, you know, year after year, the brands and the characters everybody loves. I think that Netflix is there. There's a handful of people that are that are going to be able to do that. I think that's one company that is. I think it becomes very tricky in a multi-person household to get rid of Netflix. As an individual, you know, I'll tell you, except for the fact that T-Mobile pays for most of my Netflix bill, I don't need Netflix right now. I'm not watching a lot of it. Uh, I'm not watching any of it, frankly. Uh, and even the shows I did watch, I used to watch the CW shows like The Flash and Arrow. And you can watch those on the CW app. And it's a little annoying because there's a commercial, like where there would have been commercials, there's one commercial. And it's usually always the same commercial for the whole episode. But, you know, that's not that bad an experience. And I often find myself not considering Netflix, but I do agree. Most houses are going to keep Netflix as just sort of the default. There's always stuff there. And I've never really understood the, uh, hey, I'm just watching The Office in the background, but that does seem to be something they do. Even uh, one of our viewers, uh, the, 
I believe that's the Vegas says my consumption of Netflix went way down when they lost the office. Um, so that is important to a lot of people. Last question on Netflix. Then we're going to take some of your questions and comments. Uh, what do you think Netflix is doing wrong? Simon, you get to go first. Yeah, I mean, they mentioned in the shareholder letter that they're considering a stock buyback right now. And if they, I, I don't think that they've done that yet. So maybe this is a future wrong they might commit. But we're selling at all-time valuation multiple highs. Uh, not all-time, perhaps, but the last five years. Netflix is a really expensive stock right now. You don't generally want to be buying back your stock when the market is already telling you, we're giving you the benefit of the doubt. We're expecting so much out of your stock price right now. Uh I would rather see some some larger content IP acquisitions. Uh, Dan, you and I have talked about this many times, or, or maybe even Netflix just you know builds that cash hoard a little bit so they can go out and make some other really big um, purchase. I don't I don't think that I like the idea of a stock buyback right now. Debuting next week on Netflix, Cash Hoard, a new show. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, more, your more thoughts? What Indian Creek for the Symington family? <laughs> <laughs> I. Uh... Yeah, I, I I think that's the 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 one thing is is I would I would hope they'd make a, a more astute capital allocation decision uh, with the cash that they have, take the opportunity to run up the score, make a content acquisition, create some you know more decent content, uh, and if you know say the market pulls back and valuation multiples contract or something and the stock gets hit, maybe strategically pursue that, but don't do it right now. Uh, you know I, I think you have to be smart about stock buybacks. Uh, I mean, I, I would almost take a dividend uh, over that and let shareholders determine what to do with the capital that you're dispersing. Um, but yeah, I, I'd be more, uh, I'd be hesitant to accept that as a good decision um, for buybacks. And that might be the only thing they're doing wrong right now. So before I tell you what I think Netflix is doing wrong, I'll share my Twitter handle. That's at Worst Ideas 7. You can see it right there on the screen. And I do that because I'm going to say something that outrages people who like this. But Netflix is shooting itself in the foot by, by taking a show, a heavy buzz show, and reducing all the episodes at the same time. So imagine if The Mandalorian came out and all 10 episodes were there. How would I know when Simon watched it? There's no like rule of thumb. Like, Are you supposed to stay up all night and watch it? Then we could talk about it Monday. Do I wait 10 weeks if you want to watch one episode a week? From a publicity standpoint, it means a hot show gets talked about for like three days, and then it becomes something that's not in the cycle. Whereas, you know, even take WandaVision, which is, again, a minor entry in the Marvel Universe. It's important because it's the first Marvel Universe show, but it wasn't supposed to be. That happened because of COVID. You go to any pop culture entertainment sites, you know, you go to The Ringer or Entertainment Weekly, and they have like four articles on each episode and two podcasts breaking it down. Whereas when like the next season of Stranger Things comes out, there'll be like one article because it's only there for 72 hours and it doesn't matter. I understand that they've conditioned people to love the idea of binge watching. It's a it's bad for business. They shouldn't do it. It undercuts their product. We're going to take a question as we segment as we seg into the what we're watching. But before we do that, Simon, we just made some pretty big changes on our website. Why don't you tell the Seven Investing Now audience what we've done because it is really exciting. Yeah, we did. We we love our, our Seven Investing website. Please come check it out at seveninvesting.com. But we made some improvements to it, like you mentioned. Uh, our content is much easier to find now. 
seveninvesting.com slash research is now is now providing both our publicly available and our subscriber only content on the same page. Uh, you can't get into the subscriber content unless you, you are a subscriber and you're logged in at the time, but you can at least see everything in the exact same place. And, and that's been so helpful for people that were saying, hey, I remembered, you know, you guys wrote that article or you had that perspective. You know, I was having trouble finding it on the site. If it's a written article, it's appearing right there. And then also our live stream, and our podcast, which are other freely available uh, contents that, that, that we that we provide as well, now have their own dedicated pages as well. So you can always go back, find Dan's live streams from when we began recording them, uh, find all of our podcasts where we're bringing in external guests and also talking as a team, all on their own dedicated pages. Uh, we have separate entries for each one of those. We're going to make it even easier to search through those for specific topics or even words that you heard us talking about in the podcast. And we'll be providing transcripts for all of them in the very near future too. So uh, we, again, we really appreciate everybody who watches these shows. I think one of the challenges for us was saying, oh, I remembered you guys were talking about something really neat. How do I find that on the site? Uh, we're going to make that as simple as possible for people that visit 7investing.com. 7investing is always evolving. We are always listening to our members. We listen to the people who watch these shows, and we appreciate how much this show has grown and how much our subscription service has grown so quickly. If you'd like to be a part of the paid side of our business, that's 7investing.com slash subscribe. Uh, there's often also in our Twitter feed, uh, we share member referrals where the member gets a free month if you subscribe and you get a deal. So watch the at 7 investing Twitter because there's a decent chance you can not only get a deal for yourself, you can give one of our members a free month. And we have a couple of members that, boy, I'm going to be working well into retirement uh, based on how many free months they have. I'm never going to retire. This is too much. 49, 49 free months, I think is a high water mark right now. <laughs> not until 2025. I was going to say, you said 49. I was insulted. I'm only 47. Uh, you, you, were going, you, you were going in a different direction. Um, we're going to take a question from ZL here that segs into our what we're watching topic. Uh, so ZL says, do you think Southwest is a good investment uh, here since Biden, uh, that's President Joe Biden, has accelerated COVID prevention measures and vaccines are slowly rolling out. Steve, I'll let you weigh in first here. I have my own thoughts on Southwest. I'll go last. I was going to say, uh, you probably have a, a better informed opinion on Southwest. This is ticker LUV for anyone who's following a uh, little play on their, their taglines, but, uh, and, and their logos. Uh, you know, if I had to buy an airline, Southwest would probably be the one. Um, uh, I'm not entirely convinced airlines deserve a, a place in my own portfolio. I've never been particularly compelled uh, by airlines as a business, and uh, I'd be very wary uh, of airlines that are taking um, taking on new debt, even if it comes in the form of government assistance uh, through the pandemic. Uh, that's part of the reason that we saw Buffett sell out of his positions on airlines last year. Uh, he sold out when it became apparent that uh, aid was going to be required. And, uh, you know, he made the argument that, uh, you know, say you have airlines taking 14 billion in in government aid to stay afloat that makes shareholders eventually it's got to come out of earnings and makes them that much poorer uh south you know that's not to say they can't be compelling investments purchased at the right price uh but i think there's a lot of other good places to put your money to work but if i had to buy an airline uh i will say southwest would probably be the one 
Simon, they're based in Dallas. You're in Houston. Uh, your thoughts here on and, – and I'm going to get to the, the seg part of this, uh, but feel free to, to take it if you like. Oh, nothing else I can really add, Dan. I'd actually defer to you on this one. I know you follow the airlines much more closely yeah, than I so, do. So, so let me jump in. Nothing changed about Southwest because Joe Biden took office. And that's kind of my political warning as we head into the next segment. So – if I had to buy an airline, I'd buy Southwest. I'm an avid customer. I love the fact that today I, I have a trip booked for late March for Vegas, and, and I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be vaccinated by then, so I'm pretty sure I'm going to go on that trip, and I needed to change the day I was leaving. I went in and I did that this morning, or the day I was yeah leaving Vegas, the day I was coming home, and I did that, and it was actually cheaper. So, oh, great. I, I've now saved myself. I got some points back because I, I booked it with points. And then I went, gee, I wonder if I can fly from the closer airport in West Palm Beach, which is about three miles down the road, as opposed to Fort Lauderdale, which is an hour down the road. I changed it to West Palm Beach and it got cheaper again. What airline allows you to do that? They're a customer friendly airline. That being said, I wouldn't invest because it's such a capital-intensive business. It's so dependent on so many outside factors. I mean, weather is always an issue. Certainly, you've seen with the pandemic. To me, there's just so much risk and so much money being spent to maintain an airline that I'm a giant fan. I, I, I root for them. I'm very proud as a customer of how they treated their employees during the pandemic. They're really the only major airline I think has really put customers and employees first, but I wouldn't invest. But my, my thesis on that doesn't change because we're going to have a faster pace of coronavirus vaccine and, and, you know, stricter measures. You know, I do think it's, it's exciting, you know, that we're seeing some of these things happen, but that doesn't change the long term. It just maybe speeds it up. It's not a bad investment. It's just not where I'm going to go. So for what we're watching, uh, we're going to talk about the market impact of the changes in control of the U.S. government. What we're not going to talk about is politics. This isn't about whether it's left-wing or right-wing. This is about the practical changes. And I, I will say it up front that largely it doesn't matter that much. Uh, it, even in a, in a fairly extremist government, it, the president, Congress, they can only do so much that impacts the market. Um, but Simon, you want to talk about uh, President Joe Biden's first moves in office. That includes rejoining the Paris Accord, canceling the Keystone Pipeline. And I cannot think of the Keystone Pipeline without thinking of the Keystone cops building it, uh, which is not how it's happening. And that's a dated reference, but still that's a um, – and in general, sort of climate. Maybe that brings in solar energy. So Simon, what are your investing takeaways here? Yeah, I mean, the, the Paris Accord was one of his first acts in office, right, is putting the U.S. back in the Paris Agreement, which is uh, basically every country on the globe, minus OPEC, uh, the countries that are in the OPEC cartel, uh, saying we're going to contain global warming, that we don't want to increase the temperature of the earth uh, by more than 2%, 2 degrees Celsius, more than pre-industrial levels. And the U.S. is part of that too, right? And so this is a huge undertaking. This is a huge comprehensive framework uh, between all the countries on the globe that are emitting carbon dioxide, including China. That's a part of this too. And it's um, legally binding in certain ways. But, you know, from an investing perspective on this, you know, we don't want to go political, like you said, Dan. We just want to say, you know, what is this going to mean for investors? I, I think that this is going to have an impact that we're going to see much more stringent emission standards specifically for the coal industry, that will be a boon for solar industry going forward. And we've seen at the federal level, uh, we've seen tax credits 
whether those are production tax credits, whether those are uh, you know incentive-based capital tax credits. And then we've also seen at the state level, a lot of renewable energy standards too. But I do think that this is something that's going to take a long time. Let's not go out there and buy every solar stock tomorrow because you know Biden's <laughs> gotten us back in the Paris Accord again. But I do think that when you think in terms of decades, uh, this is kind of where the world is all agreeing that we need to address this issue. And I think given a long-term time horizon, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, if you're patient to wait that long, the solar industry is definitely something that should be on our radar as investors. But solar is also a bit like cannabis, right? Where the pricing is very, very aggressive, which can sometimes make a good industry very difficult to invest in. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, especially for solar panels themselves, because you can't just flip a switch and the lab can all of a sudden make the ultimate efficient solar panel, right? It takes time. There's different types. If you want crystalline silicon or thin films or different technologies, it doesn't happen immediately. And then you've also got other places with much lower operating costs, labor costs like China, that can make them a lot cheaper than the U.S. And so I tend to stay away from solar panel producers themselves. Uh, more interesting to me are the components that go into the balance of the system, especially for residential. And, and so one thing that I've been following for years now is uh, these devices called uh, microinverters. You've got to convert the DC current that's produced by a solar panel into the AC current that can be accepted by the grid. Uh, we've seen some companies that have really been able to capture uh, some pretty decent pricing on this. I mean, there's a company called Solar Edge, which is an Israeli company. It's a seven bagger in the last two years. It's up seven. It's it's seven hundred percent of its stock price two years ago, uh, but it continues to to play a niche, very important niche component uh, to solar balance of system. Something like that is, I think, worth a lot closer of a look. It's not as price elastic, but you still have to have something like that to get the maximum ROI on your project. Simon, you're going to talk ESG investing in a second. Before we do that, I want to address a comment by a Koppel Stoneman 28, who sort of wanted us. So our, our tease for this episode, is it too late to buy Netflix? We didn't directly answer the question. So when we're done with this segment, we will, I, I feel like we did, but we'll actually state the answer to that for each of us. Because we, again, we look at your comments. Someone is watching the show. That's what we teased, expected a definitive answer. When we finish this segment, we will give you a definitive answer. But Simon, right now, something Biden has already done is good for ESG investing. Explain what ESG means uh, and then talk about what's actually happened here. Yeah, so we hear ESG talked about a lot of investing. It's environmental, social, and governments. It is companies that are doing well by doing good is kind of one of those taglines that stuck out there. But they're really making a conscious effort to uh, not pollute, to make sure that they are, uh, you know, uh, being fair to their employees, and then also that they're addressing uh, shareholders as well. And and I think that with a lot of the moves that that, that Biden has already made in office, uh, this is going to bring ESG investing back into the limelight a little bit more. Uh, specifically, we've already seen a Biden executive order that called for a review of the Labor Department's 2020 ruling on ESG investments. So what this was doing was it was making it more difficult before this, uh, based on this labor department ruling, to get ESG type investments into the default options of 401k plans. And so a lot of people that aren't going out there and individually saying, oh, okay, I've assessed this, this is an ESG company, I'm going to invest in that on my own. If those companies were packed into default options that maybe your employer gave you for a 401k plan, it would be easier for you to select into these. Uh, with this review of this ruling. 
And so, I mean, that's step one of what I think is is kind of a lot of steps we're going to be seeing and hearing about this year and the next four years, too, that I think that ESG kind of comes back into the forefront. People start paying a, a little bit more attention to that because there's policy behind it. Uh, the unit economics of renewable energy are definitely improving. And I think that there's some some important investing kind of takeaways from a lot of that's being captured in this. And a thank you, Simon. Steve, you wanted to talk about uh, how we, we've known this from the beginning. So when when Biden introduced his stimulus plan, it was $1.9 trillion. But this is a bit like if you and I go to Simon with maybe like a travel request. And we're like, okay, we want to go to the trade show in Vegas. We'd like a private plane. We each want our own suite. And then Simon negotiates us down to you'll be uh, we'll be FedExing you there and you'll be sleeping one of you, one of you watching the uh, guarding the other one in a restroom and then taking turns. Like it's all about <laughs> negotiating time. No, Simon lets us travel in reasonable style here. I'm teasing a little bit. When when such a thing is legal and allowable. I'm working on the corporate jet, Dan. Working on that next. <laughs> hey, you get a 737 max for a song. Uh, but right. but Steve, there's pushback on the 1.9 trillion, but he never expected <laughs> to get this, right? Like this, yeah. this is any political party. Again, not talking left, not talking right. You yeah. set the bar much higher than what you think you're going to do so you can begrudgingly sacrifice some things that you never expected in a million years were actually going to get approved. Right. And uh, yeah, it reminds me of the the song, The Other Side in, in uh, <laughs> what Greatest Showman, right, where they, they negotiate back and forth on, on you know, what percentage you'll be taking. And uh, yeah, that's exactly it. We talked a little bit about the, the $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal. It's not, you know, not law. It's not signed in uh, a little bit last week. And on one hand, we have the White House that's arguing that it's critical for Congress to push uh, through stimulus payment and coronavirus relief as soon as possible. And there is definitely an argument to be made for that. Uh, you know, and I guess one thing to keep in mind uh, is that over one trillion of Biden's plan contains direct support for individuals and families. And uh, on the other hand, Republicans are predictably pushing back. We expected this on certain parts of that plan they don't like. And uh, even some Wall Street analysts stepped out and said, wow, this is this proposal was a little larger than we thought. And they're considering that kind of a net positive. And the market reacted positively to uh, the fact that he was asking for so much right after they passed a nine hundred billion dollar plan only recently. And um our challenge, I guess, uh, for this team is how to approach this from an investing standpoint. Uh, our economy obviously needs a bridge uh, as the pandemic continues and to really hold us over and, and bolster us. And we've already seen evidence that the last stimulus uh, payments actually have already had a positive impact on several industries, including restaurants, for example. Uh, we, we saw a, a sales lift. And however temporary, uh, this is something that can hold us over and, uh, and really prop up the economy until it can kind of get back on more sustainable ground once the pandemic really wanes. So uh, I think this is sort of the juggling act that we find ourselves in right now. And uh, I, I do, you know, everybody expects that they will come to terms on in uh, a stimulus agreement that won't be 1.9 trillion, uh, but it also won't be 500 billion. Uh, it'll be, you know, we'll find somewhere in the middle. And, uh, and I think, you know, everybody wants to find a bipartisan solution to this, and I think that will be well. Well, well not everybody, but <laughs> but we, we'd like we'd like to hope most people want to find that. Yeah. Steve, let me jump in with something. So the markets tend to focus on those checks, the the twelve hundred dollar checks, then the six hundred dollar right. checks. Now the possibility of a fourteen hundred dollar check, and I agree, that's a short term stimulus. You mm-hmm. get that, and if you're in real trouble, it doesn't help that much because that's that's one month rent, and and you know, depending where you are, it's it's less than my one one month rent in this 
beautiful home I, I'm lucky enough to live in. Uh, that being said, I actually think the biggest piece of this is extending enhanced unemployment benefits. Because right. if you take 10 million, however many people are out of work right now, I, I apologize, I forget the exact number, and you give them a lifeline, that's people who are putting money up the stream. They're paying their rent, they're buying food, they're, they're meeting basic you know, clothing needs for their kids. To me, I think the market will not be excited about that, but that's the biggest thing we're not seeing. Steve, your thoughts there. Right. And I think if memory serves, it was a $400 billion or $400 per week extension uh, for those unemployment benefits. And that's that's definitely bigger, uh, I think, than most people realize. And it's it's not as visible because, you know, if you're a family of five, you're not going to get a, uh, you know, a seven thousand dollar check uh, for the four. You know they, that's you're not talking about that, but four hundred dollars a week makes a big difference in addition to those stimulus payments, and uh, yeah, that's a, a very big deal. And I think it was uh, something like three million people fell off the the unemployment you know cliff. Uh, that happened when they sort of signed this later uh, than we anticipated. So, uh, yeah, that's a lot of people uh, who will be able to pay bills and feed themselves and clothe them, their family uh, who otherwise might not be able to uh, in the near term. So, Simon, I think we've done it. We've managed to navigate politics again without being political. So on Monday's episode, we're going to talk religion. We're going to talk. No, no, we are not. We only get into the realm of some of these things when they directly impact the market. So right now, the actions of government have kind of an outsized influence over the market because so many people are reacting to it. But I would point out, that whether we get a $1,400 check or an unemployment extension, all of these things are short-term noise. The real changes are going to be you know, the parts of these bills that keep some of our small businesses open, that, you know, that allow the country to move forward. I, you know, I'd be more excited about an infrastructure bill in three to six months that gets people working. You know, that's really, you want to look at the long-term trends. It's good for the market if people right. are working. A healthy economy is good for the market. It doesn't necessarily matter how, you know, how it became healthy. Steve, I'll give you the last word here. Yes. So uh, that's another thing to keep in mind is right after this, uh, people widely expect Biden to propose another spending uh, plan uh, that will uh, focus on infrastructure and jobs. And that will be maybe the more consequential uh, of the the two proposals that we're talking about. This first one serves as a bridge to prop up the economy. The second one will serve to, um, you know, really uh, focus more on infrastructure and jobs. And uh, to Simon's points earlier about ESG and, uh, and renewable energy, we're going to have uh, a lot of sort of corollary effects uh, that, that come from that. And, uh, and it's going to focus on green energy and ESG. And anyone who's for not, not familiar with the acronym, uh, to save you a Google, uh, it's environmental, social and governance issues, people who companies that are responsible uh, to that end, um, when we talk about ESG investing. So, um, but yeah, that, that will be another proposal coming up. And, uh, and that's going to be, I think, even more important to the long term health of our economy. We'll talk ESG on a future show. Simon, go ahead. I'll, I'll give Can you the, the last, last, last word. Ah, thank you. Thank you. The last word on this. I mean, I think that, that the, the overall takeaway for me is that it's not our place to say the government should do this. Right. Or, you know, call up Joe Biden and say, hey, Joe, get on the phone. Hey, I think you should do this. That's not the point of our show. The point of, of what we're doing as individual investors is to say, okay, what is the government doing? And how is that going to impact our recommendations, knowing that we're buying and holding 
indefinitely, right? We're not trying to get in and out over six months over, over a stock pick that we think is going to be hot for a little while and then it's going to go away. When you hear Steve talking about ESG investing, that's a really big deal. When we're talking about the solar industry, that's a really big deal. When you talk about the Paris Climate Accord, that's a long-term perspective. That is exactly aligned with how we want to be actually making our own recommendations. And then we're not selling. We're not getting in and out of positions. We're, we're going to buy and hold and let them ride. And our scorecard reflects that, that long-term investing is the way to go if you want to compound wealth over long periods of time. And since I'm the host, I'll take the last, last, last <laughs> word. If you look at trends, they're really easy to see where the mark, where we're going. We just don't know how long it's going to take to get there. So we're clearly moving towards a world with electric cars and maybe autonomous driving. Are those things going to take 10 years or 30 years? I don't think we know the answer. And I do think you can say, okay, this type of administration might make that a little bit more favorable. But we don't know if that's going to change the timetable by days or months or years. It's not going to change it by decades. Um, so none of the trends, none of the destinations change based on who's in charge. And with that, before we hit the home stretch, let's answer the question. Is it too late to buy Netflix? I am not a fan of Netflix content, as became clearly obvious today, yet I subscribed to Netflix and could see no time where I ever wouldn't. So no, it is not too late to get into Netflix. It might not be a massive hyper growth stock, but it's going to be a, a steady gainer that also has a lot of volatility. Steve, your thoughts on this one? Uh, I don't think it's too late to buy it. And I mean, in the interest of full disclosure, I, I have a, a handful of shares in a Roth IRA sitting around uh, that almost, you know, went up in value for as much as I paid for them. But uh, I think if you do buy Netflix today, it would, wouldn't be a bad idea to uh, to maybe average into your position uh, because I'd be equally unsurprised if it continued to rise as I would if it fell. So, uh, and, but over the long term, I think it'll, it'll be just fine. And, uh, and a lot of people think, man, I should have bought Netflix 15 years ago. Maybe, but that doesn't mean you can't buy it and enjoy some decent gains today. On a show next week, we'll do a segment on uh, market terms like average into and define them and sort of uh, give some explanations. Because I think sometimes we do sort of throw stuff out there that will cause some of our audience to have to go to Google. So one of our shows next week, we'll make a list. So if there's terms we use that you'd like us to define or talk about more, we'll, we'll put ESG in there. Send us those terms at 7investing on Twitter or info at 7investing.com, uh, which is our email, because we want to make this a show for everybody. Seasoned investors, new investors, there are a lot of people out there that want to be in the market. We want to be their bridge to doing that correctly. Simon, your thoughts on Netflix. Should you buy? Is it too late? I'm on a hold for Netflix right now. I would say don't sell your stake because it's overvalued, but I don't think you're getting a really great... Entry point, I think that the expectations are baked in. I mean, one thing that I always look at is optionality of like what is not being considered in the stock price right now. I think that it's harder to see that with Netflix. We're, we're kind of modeling out its growth. We kind of know the whole world is its oyster now. And we've seen the subscriber growth and that's that's appearing in the stock price. Um, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not jumping in and, and backing up the truck on Netflix, but I, I do think it's going to be very hard to displace. So I'm definitely not selling my shares. So normally we take a lot more comments, but we are running fairly long today. So uh, people like ZL and John Hins, who had some really good questions in, if you want to hit us up with those questions on the email, um, 
you know, sometimes if a if a stock you're asking about is a recent pick of another paid service, we tend to wait a few days to talk about it. Uh, but for the most part, we will answer those questions. And we're, we're only skipping them today because we've already gone 47 minutes. Uh, stock investor commenting on my saying it's going to take, you know, 10 to 30 years for electric vehicles says, well, what about three to five? I don't think we're going to have predominantly electric vehicles in three to five years. I'd love to be wrong about that. I think there's a massive infrastructure problem uh, before we can get to that. I mean, you're starting to see more charging stations. But with that, we're going to move into the home stretch. And we're going to try to get through this quickly because we've we've run a little bit long here. But Sam Bailey, if you could share the graphic. Uh, This is a question I asked on the 7investing Twitter feed. What's the biggest global beverage company by market cap? Share your guesses here and we'll discuss on the Friday 7investing now. I brought this up because I saw this and it absolutely shocked me. I'm going to go through some of our friend and member responses. Uh, Mabel N said, monster something? I forgot the full name. Joyce Hines said, Coke, Parrot, probably too obvious, so they're far wrong, but I'll go with Coke. Golfer Jim, Anheuser-Busch. Uh, Parrot says that would have been a second guess. Um, uh, e- Egon says, LVMH, they own Moet Hennessy. I wouldn't consider them purely a beverage company, but they wouldn't be it either. That was uh, one just, of my guesses, actually. <laughs> just swinging it says, Coke, Pepsi, Anheuser-Busch, uh, Hot Girl Capital Management says uh, Monster Energy. I don't name the people. They pick their own names. Uh, Anon Catri says Dio. I don't even know what that one is. So I'm going to say Oh, Diageo. Yeah. Uh, and that's an, uh, who owns I what we were in India? About the rock and roll singer Dio. Okay. <laughs> uh, Michael Trasberg says who owns what in India and China? Diageo. That's getting close to it. Before I give you the answer, Simon Erickson, before I told you the answer a couple hours ago, what would you have guessed? Starbucks. Starbucks or Coca-Cola would have been my guess. Steve Simonton, what would you have guessed? I would have guessed uh, AB and Bev or Coke. So. Simon, before I reveal the answer, I'll ask you to look at the chat and grab the couple of people that are asking for comments uh, for uh, definitions when we do that show last week. I saw at least one, so uh, I can't do that while hosting. So if you could do it, that would be great. The actual answer, and uh, Bluth123 got this, uh, and I'm going to guess he read the same CNBC article I did, and it's Kwai Chow Mutai. Uh, that's a Chinese company, which it's named after its core product, Mutai, which CNN noted is 53% liquor and tastes like fire. It is described as like drinking razor blades. This oh. is the largest <laughs> non-tech Chinese company. It's valued at about $421 billion. Uh, depending on I didn't check today, Nestle would actually be bigger, but Nestle I wouldn't is in no way a pure beverage company where most of these are. Why did I bring this up? Because guys, had any of you ever heard of this company, which trades on the Shanghai Exchange, so it's not completely obscure. Steve, have you heard of this company before today? No, I'll add that to the list of four hundred billion dollar companies I just learned about, and that's saying something. I mean, I literally follow hundreds of stocks. I've written about thousands of stocks, and I mean. That there can exist a $400 billion company that I'm completely unfamiliar with. I, I, I would never know. So very quickly, let's look at the market opportunity here. 97% of Mutai is sold in China. The other 3% is sold generally to expats or people who are using it for ceremonial reasons. Now, they've tried some things like uh, having some social media clubs in other countries. The problem with it is, is it's a lot like champagne, where sparkling wine produced elsewhere isn't champagne. Mutai can only be produced in one region in China, and there's only so much they could produce. So almost any stock of it 
get sold instantly at very, very high prices. But this is one we're going to keep an eye on. And if, if you have any other $400 billion companies you think maybe we haven't heard of, send it over because that would be a great show to do as well. Simon, I'll let you introduce this one. It's time to hit our finisher. This was your question, so I'll let you take the lead here. Oh, go ahead. Please go ahead, Dan. I'm still thinking about the Mutai and how we get a hold of this without it being a flammable hazard shipping. Oh, no, no, no. We, we, we need a bottle of this for the, the first in-person 7 Investing meeting. Sam Bailey, this was Simon's Twitter question. Share our finisher. Which one of the following emerging markets do you believe will create the greatest amount of wealth for investors during the next 10 years? Uh, 63% said CRISPR gene editing. 22.8% um, said quantum computing. 14.2% said the space economy. I have to be honest here, Simon. I have absolutely no idea. Uh, I'll give you the first word because this was your question. Uh, this is me displaying what a nerd I am looking at some of these these scientific things that are going on. It's fascinating to me, each one of these. The key of the question was in the next 10 years. You know, these are going to be really, really big trends that are taking shape in the world of medicine, in the world of computing, in the world of the space economy. Uh, I, I personally vote for quantum computing, which sounds unbelievable, right? This has always been a science project that's been five years out, and then it goes five years, and it's five more years out. But CRISPR is going to be amazing. Gene editing is going to redefine medicine, but it's got to still, everything's got to go through FDA trials. That's going to be a longer time frame as well. Space economy is going to be amazing, but we know that's going to have to be perfect uh, in terms of regulation. So that's going to take a lot amount of time. But quantum computing is so interesting to me because everyone wants the quantum advantage. All of the internet's cryptography, which means everything you have on the internet that is protected, you know, your medical records, your credit card information, your bank account is behind these cryptographic uh, algorithms that no other computers can solve because computers are running at about the same speed right now. If a quantum computer comes out and someone claims a quantum advantage, all of a sudden, every cybersecurity vendor on the planet is trying to keep up frantically to change that. And all of our internet security is built upon it. This is something that I think we have to be paying more attention to. Steve, I'll give you the last comment because I have nothing to add here. Uh, as a computer science major, I agree <laughs> with quantum computing. Uh, I've I've always thought it was a, a really intriguing um, intriguing niche, and it's one of those things where uh, the quantum advantage and the the uh, the revelations that will be unlocked when quantum computing begins to gain scale, I think will be staggering. And I think they'll have follow-on effects to other industries like CRISPR and gene editing and the space economy, uh, making calculations uh, simpler and being able to run previously impossible algorithms and uh, and and previously uh, really lengthy calculations uh, in sometimes in seconds. And uh, I think the what that will enable is uh, it, it will be stunning. And uh, I think it will um, really revolutionize multiple industries. So I think um, it's the umbrella that kind of enables everything else. I'm still crushed that Dippin' Dots did not prove to be the ice cream of the future or the present, <laughs> frankly. They're actually delicious, but they have not done well. I'm going to share one more comment before we go. Turf P says, love listening to you guys. You are filled with positively, positivity and investing smartness. Yeah, we try to be positive. We like what we do. Um, so look, there are going to be companies we don't like. There are going to be companies we look at it. But even when I don't like a company, I'm rooting for it to succeed because companies aren't these amorphous things. Like, you know, if, if I say, geez, I'm not that big a fan of, uh, I don't know, 
CBS or Viacom or whatever name they're going by now. I'm not saying I want people to lose their jobs and the company to go out of business. I'm just saying I think there's better investment opportunities. So we are unbelievably relentlessly positive and we are so privileged to get to do this. And we get to do this because so many of you are watching and supporting us. So with that, um, that finishes up today's episode, the longest ever episode of Seven Investing. Now, I almost took one more question just so we could go an hour, but uh, we have so much <laughs> more to do today that I'm not going to do that. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at info at seveninvesting.com. That is usually Steve Symington who uses his giant hands. To, you can't see in the perspective here. <laughs> But Steve is nine feet tall. Uh, I'm like five seven. Simon is also tall. So I, I'm not sure how I got picked. Uh, but for for Simon Erickson, for Steve Symington, I'm Dan Klein. We will see you on Monday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.